You are listening to a 14-week teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Acts. Luke, the author of Acts, tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, that the Gospels were only the beginning of all Jesus did and taught. The book of Acts is the continuation of Jesus' ministry on earth through the church, and this story is continuing today. This sermon series will address key themes in the book of Acts and connect them with our lives today. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Well, today, um, whether you're here in the city or with us in Washington or at the lake, we're going to continue in our series uh, in the book of Acts, which is Acts is is the story of the church. We're going to continue in our uh, series on the book of Acts called Unfinished Business. And the reason why we uh, call it Unfinished Business is because when Jesus was here on earth, he didn't dot every I, he didn't cross every T. He, he left a work for us to do. And so when we started this series in Acts, Acts 1-1, uh, Luke, the author of Acts, wrote uh, that this is a sequel. The prequel to Acts is his gospel uh, of Luke. And so in Acts 1-1, he says that in his first book, Luke, or you can take any gospel, he wrote that all that Jesus began to do and teach. And that word began is really important for us understanding the purpose of the church and the purpose of our lives. Because Jesus, when he walked on this physical earth, it was just the beginning of his teaching ministry. It was just the beginning of his healing ministry. It was just the beginning of his doing ministry. And now, through the story of the church, which we're reading about in Acts, we finish, we, we continue, we, we dot the I's, we cross the T's. So when God wants to save, um, the, we are the conduit by which he saves. So when he, when he wants to love someone, he uses your eye to, to bring that message of love or to do that act of love. When he wants to give to someone, when we, uh, when we say things like, man, if there is a God, you know, he should be doing something about poverty. And God's like, hello, that's what you're here to do. So what does it mean? So, so the Bible uses language like, like we are the body of Christ. What does that mean to be the body of Christ? What does it mean to be the hands and the feet of Jesus? Well, he's got ideas about how the earth should go. He wants to minister. He wants to love. He wants to encourage. And he wants to use us. He wants to uh, send his power through us to other people. He's got someone encouraged. He wants to use you to go encourage. And, and this, this is, you can read this all throughout the Bible, but this, I won't get into that. But just basically, that's why we call it unfinished business, because we've got the business of Jesus to continue. And it's so important that we stay true to our purpose or we'll get sidetracked and we'll get involved in things that we shouldn't get involved in. And, and just to say this, that the church has had her enemies. There have been uh, ex- external enemies that have tried to extinguish the church. But here's the truth. After 2,000 years, both the Bible testifies to this as well as history, that no external enemy has ever done anything to hinder the advancement of the church, but only empower it. So in the first couple of centuries, I mean, they were... Uh, lighting us like candles, feeding us to lions, in catacombs, torture, death, imprisonment. And with just in a couple hundred years without motorized transportation or anything, any, anything internet related, it goes 1,500 mile radius from Jerusalem to Rome, but also uh, 
up to half the Roman Empire claimed the name of Jesus. This thing went crazy in the midst of intense external uh, enemies. Uh, But while external enemies have done nothing to stop or hinder the church, uh, there's been some internal ones have had some success. And I want to talk about the big one today. uh, That's really what this text is all about. But before I get to that, just want to set up kind of where we've been so far in the book of Acts Uh, What we've read is Jesus, before he ascends to earth, he says uh, to his group of 120, his followers back then, he says, okay, now here's the church. Go be me. Go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. That's what I want you to do. Uh, Your purpose is to be witnesses. The plan is those four areas. And the church got busy with that. And, and, and so within a couple of months, I mean, there's like ten or 15,000 people added. I mean, they, they were rocking and rolling, knocking it out of the park. Uh, but it was just in Jerusalem. And so all, the, all of Christianity, uh, uh, chapters of Acts 1 through 8, as you read through that, it's all Jewish. And so the Jewish customs, the Jewish tradition. So everyone ate Jewish, looked Jewish, acted Jewish. And so it was, and it hadn't broken out of that mold. Now, uh, a few weeks back, we, we get into chapter 8, and we see that Philip, he goes to Samaria. So now Samaritans are included. And then in some crazy act of a, the spirit and an angel, uh, you know, he winds up in the desert, and an African's involved now. And, and, so, and, then, and then last week we, in Acts 10, um, we learned about Cornelius, and Peter has this vision about bacon. And then all of a sudden, you know, Greeks and all kinds of people get added into. And, and we, we skipped verse, chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, but in those chapters, Paul's going all over uh, the Roman Empire, into Asia, into Greek and Roman cities, non-Jewish areas. And he's planting churches and he's preaching the gospel. And lots and lots of people are coming into um, Christianity. And then uh, there's this controversy that happens. And that's what we read about in Acts 15. And just to say that this controversy is so relevant to us because this is probably the reason why your parents at some point might have said, okay, we're done with the church. Or maybe that was you. Maybe you grew up in the church and and as soon as you could get out, you did. Or something happened. And that's really what this controversy is about. Because what this controversy is about, this controversy is about who is in the church and who's out. Who's in, who's out. How good do you have to be to be a part of the church? Uh, it, what code of conduct, what kind of lifestyle do you need to have to be a part of the church? And this is understandable uh, from the Jewish people. Let's just be kind of fair here for a second, because all they've known to that part were the Ten Commandments. You know, the t- you like the Ten Commandments, so you know, you, um, yeah, you like them. Uh, you really want your p- kids to like them, um, more than you, but the, but the, it wasn't just the Ten Commandments. There were some 1,613 other laws that they sought to follow to help them with the big ones so that they didn't even go near that. And so they grew up in this, and, and they just thought that Christianity was an extension of Judaism, um, which makes perfect sense because, after all, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And um, Jesus came and said, hey, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. So it made perfect sense for them to say, hey, we just need to continue on uh, obeying the law. But like I said, the, the gospel breaks loose all throughout the Roman Empire. And Paul's going and preaching the gospel and um, lots of people being saved. And then these Jewish people go out and say, hey, wait a minute. You know, Jesus is a good start, but there's some rules you got to follow. 
And, and the pushback from the Gentiles will go, wait a minute, you know, Paul never told us about this. And so this controversy started with uh, those inside the church saying to those outside the church, hey, getting in the church isn't that easy. There, there's some hoops that you have to follow. And um, I think there's a lot of us, there's a huge segment, segment in our society uh, call, there's the non-churched and the unchurched, and then there's the de-churched. And these are those who belong, but somehow found out that they weren't uh, a part because they didn't um, cut the mustard. And so this is what we want to talk about today. Now, the flip side of this, just to say, because I, I want to I wanna, I wanna make sure that we see this holistically, is that when, when, you, when you become a Christian... Um, there are gospel imperatives that, that Jesus expects you to follow, expects all of us to follow. And um, th- there are certain, there's, there's certain things that, that the Bible says that you shouldn't do uh, that we end up doing. These are called sins of commission. They are things like the Bible says don't lie, but we lie. It says don't murder. Uh, that happens. Don't hate. Don't sexual immorality, gossip, slander, all that stuff. Um, and then there, there are things that the Bible also says that we should do that we often don't. We don't think about these. These are called sins of omission because we omit them. We, we don't do them. So the Bible says things like love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. So the manner in which, the quantity to which, the care and the concern that you have for your own life, take that exact same intensity and, and apply that to how you love other people. Uh, forgiveness, uh, generosity, serving. And so there's no doubt of us within a community like ours that's made up of those who are not yet apart, as well as those who've been apart for um, whether it's a year, two years, 10 years, is there are some of us in the community that we want to wave the flag uh, for truth of Jesus. So people should obey, people should uh, follow the rules. Let's do everything that we can do to maintain truth, order, and holiness. Now there are other of us that, that really want to wave the flag uh, of grace, like, hey, dude, chill out, you know, like, let's not, you know, hey, we just, you know, some days we do good, some days we don't, doesn't really matter, God loves you anyway, and let's just avoid restricting freedoms at all costs. Now, what happens is that these two ideas that seemingly on the opposite ends collide together in this train wreck in the church, and so what is it? So how, how do we act? Do we, do we apply the, the truth of Jesus to the situation or the grace of Jesus to the situation? But I, I want to give us a verse out of John 1.14 that I think helps us. John was one of Jesus' closest followers. And when he wrote this after Jesus had already died and gone to heaven and, and after some time later, uh, after the events, and when he thought back on Jesus' life, he had this to say. He said, the word, that is Jesus. That's, this means Jesus. And Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. So all that means is that Jesus came from heaven and he went to earth. And when I think about the life of Jesus, when I think about what he represented, he was full of grace and full of truth. Full of grace and full of truth. He was the embodiment of grace and he was simultaneously also the embodiment of truth. Now what's very important for us to understand and read this, because this is what church folk like to do. They like to say, it doesn't say in Jesus uh, was the balance of grace and truth. So, you know, you know, it's great, you know, we need to have grace, but we need to balance it out with truth. It's great to have truth, but we need to balance it out with grace. So it doesn't actually matter what level of grace you're at. If you're at a one of grace, you need to have one truth, or you're five here, you're five here. But that's not what it says. In fact, John says, when I look, think back on Jesus' life, I didn't see a whole lot of balance. 
But here's what I saw. I saw that he was full of grace, meaning he is the most gracious person on the face of the earth. But simultaneously, he was uh, full of truth more than anyone. It's so important that we understand that in getting this tension right, it doesn't mean dumbing down the truth to take on grace. Doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean to belittle the grace to, to take on truth, but somehow in us getting this right, and us uh, really, and this is why this is so, such a huge topic, is that the only way to have the fullness of both is really to have both. And to have the both, have both at a maximum. And if we can be, man, I'm telling you, not only will that be a great environment for us to do community in, but it'll be so attractive and so compelling for those who don't yet um, belong. So what is this controversy over? Well, let's quickly look here. It's about circumcision. Verse 1, 15, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So unless you have a particular kind of surgery, you can't be a part of us. If you're not like us, uh, then you can't, <laughs> which the Gentiles like, whoa, time out. No, Paul never said anything about this. He talked about freedom of Christ apart from the law. It's grace. It's Jesus. It's the cross. It's believing in him and trusting in him apart from works. Nothing in there about circumcision. Um, it, and, and so they, they were like, hold on a second. And um, so anyway, so the Jew, so the, but the Jews who genuinely love Jesus said, no, you, this is what you have to do. This is the way that we were brought up, and this is the way that you need to be brought up. You need to, you need to be a part of the Moses Club before you can be a part of the Jesus Club. And this, this made sense to them. Now, Paul took issue with this because he's the one who was telling them that this wasn't necessary. So him and Barnabas, they go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was kind of like the headquarters of Christianity back then. And so uh, here's James and Peter and all the other brothers in Jerusalem. And then you've got Paul going all over to the known Gentile Roman world. By the way, Gentile, all Gentile means is a non-Jew. So anyone who's not a Jew is a Gentile. If you've ever been confused, that's all it means, which means that you're probably a Gentile. Welcome to being a Gentile, if you didn't know that. <laughs> There's a filter process uh, in there. Um, so it just works slower some days than others. You know, you know what I'm saying? You know, you get that pinwheel in your computer. That's what happens in my brain sometimes. So... Um, Anyway, so they're saying all these things. And then so Paul and Barnabas, when, when they hear about these Jewish people coming alongside and saying, hey, you've got to be, you got to have the surgery and you've got to obey all these rules, not just the Ten Commandments for these other 613. Paul's like, well, well, hold on a second. That's not what I've been saying. Now, now I just want to take a little bit of a side note because it's an important one. It has nothing to do with the main point of the message. But I want to note you to notice, here's Paul who takes exception to what someone else does sharply disagrees, in fact, thinks it's wrong against the cross, offensive to the cross. But I want you to see, I want us to see that Paul um, went to these brothers. And what's going to happen in a community over and over and over again, because it's just the way community works, is that you're going to have, you're going to take issue with someone. It could be a small thing, could be a big thing. It could be, um, it could be a preference or it could actually be a sin thing. What Paul didn't do is say, 
He didn't go back to the church and say, hey, wait a minute, these guys from Jerusalem, they don't know what they're talking about. They, you know, I've, I'm, you know I'm, I'm the one who's learned. I'm the one who's, you know, I've got more degrees than Fahrenheit. I'm smart. You know, you know, let's go start our own little church. Forget them. He doesn't do that. It's so important. So, side note, so important though, that when we have a issue with someone else, that we go to them. Here's what can happen. Two things. One is if you, if you, now if you can somehow look past it and, for, and genuinely forgive them, that's plan A. But, but what often happens is you try to like, I'm just going to put it aside. But what happens is you can't. And now all of a sudden that you, you, you have an offense towards someone and, and maybe you don't, um, maybe you just ignore them. Maybe you just do whatever you can to, to not go their path anymore. That, that, that's no good. That's, divi- that's division. But what ends up happening is we often feel like we have to let other people know about this. And it's just so destructive. But what is so life-giving and so corrective, which we're going to find, by the way, spoiler alert, this has a happy ending, but going to the person is so huge. And that's exactly what we do not pass go. We do not collect 200 bucks. We go to the person. We go right to the situation and that's how this happened. That's what he does. And so he goes to Jerusalem and he gets a report and says, hey, look, I've been preaching the gospel. People have been coming to Jesus. And I didn't tell them about the surgery. I didn't tell them about all these other laws. And and you guys are going around and telling them these laws and you're telling them about the surgery. And we got to get on the same page because they're getting mixed messages from us. And so they're like, hey, this has got to end. But then it says in verse five, it says, that these believers uh, that were part of the Pharisees, uh, which is interesting, now Pharisees are part of the, you know, the group of believers. I mean, if you know your gospel, if you've ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, what's known as the Gospels, and you read about the life of Jer- Jesus, I mean, the Pharisees were like the perennial bad guys. I mean, they're like the Klingons. They were just like, they were always, but now all of a sudden, what happens because of the resurrection, it like totally messed with their category. And now they're, they were part of the group that believed. But they were also a very zealous group, which means they were very committed to doing things right. And so like, hey, we've committed, we've, we've gathered, hey, you know, Jesus is great, and, but it's, it's a little dangerous to kind of veer off the reservation here. We've got to stay committed. And, and the way, the only way that we're going to let other people in is if they are as committed as we are. So they got to obey the Ten Commandments, these other 613 laws, as well as they need to have this surgery. They got to eat differently. They got to dress differently. They got to parent differently. They got to do other things differently, and then they can be a part of us. And I just got to say that this is so, I I know we like to think of ourselves as being open-minded and progressive, and we're not the, we're not the judgmental types, but this creeps in so quickly. I mean, th- this church is so brand new. I mean, they don't even have the wrapping paper off yet and they already are sliding back into bringing up these rules. And, the, and a lot of them maybe even witness um, the resurrection of Jesus, knew Jesus personally, and they are already sliding back. And this can happen to us. We can create walls and division. Even sometimes we don't even think about it. Even if you're the one who's like, well, I'm not the one. I, I, I don't have any rules at all. Well, you just... And so you're, but you're like, I don't want anyone who has rules then. So you, you still create this, even though you don't want rules, that in itself is a rule. So you end up creating, we end up dividing out over these, these things. It's so important. So anyway, so Peter stands up. He's kind of the leader of the group. And in verse eight, he says this, this is huge. He says, in God, this phrase, huge, 
who knows the heart. This is key. This is key for us making sense of this whole grace and truth tension. And God, who kn- do you believe that God knows the heart? You believe God knows the heart? Because I, I, I don't know your heart. I just know how you dress. I, I, I don't know you. I don't know your heart. I. I just know you smell like cigarettes. I don't know your heart. I just know where you live. I don't know your heart. I just know how your kids behave. I I don't know your heart. I just know um, the kind of car you drive. But God, who knows the heart, he's the only one who knows the heart. This is what it says, bore witness to them. Which means he accepted them. He, um, he, he gave to them the, these kind of, you know, tattoo wearing, chain smoking, Gentiles. Uh, these, even to them, he gave to them, check this out, the Holy Spirit, just like he did to us. So Paul's kind of saying, kind of throwing down here a little bit. He's getting ready to say, hey, somehow Jesus thought they were worthy enough to receive his spirit but somehow, we're, are you trying to say that the laws that we have are somehow more important than that? Like somehow the rules to get in to member, if God accepts him where they're at, are you saying the membership into our church is higher than membership into heaven? Is that, is that what we're trying to say here? He gave the Holy Spirit. Then it says, and he made no distinction between us and them. having cleansed their heart by faith. Having cleansed their heart by faith. And this is, this is another key, that, cl- that God cleanses, he knows our heart and he cleanses our heart. This is so important for you to, for us to really make sense of how grace and truth come together and to avoid legalism, but to stay firmly uh, in this area. Is that, let me ask you this question. If God cleanses a person's heart, do you think he can change their behavior. I'll let Paul writes this in Philippians 1. Philippians 1, 6. He says, I am sure. I don't know if you're sure, but Paul is sure that he who began a good work in you, he who cleanses your heart, he who takes the first step in your salvation, the only really step that, he who began a good work in you, This I know, this I'm sure of, that he will bring it to completion. And so then he goes on to say um, uh, in this passage that he says, why then are you putting God to the test? Why then are are you trying to, brothers, be the Holy Spirit in their heart and life? Are you trying to say that our laws, I'm not saying these laws shouldn't be followed, but are you trying to say that these laws, if we can get them to uh, abide by some policy, are you somehow saying that that is more powerful than what God can do in their heart? Are, Are you like wanting to throw down with God right now? Is that what you're saying? And then he adds this, which he says, By placing a yoke of, on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to hear. So he's kind of, I mean, this is, let me elaborate. So it's like, hey, Frank, you over there. Yeah, you, eye contact. Look at me. Haven't you sinned before? Didn't I see you, like, you know, a couple weeks ago giving a sin offering and, and 
at the temple, and because you were, you know, that just makes sense. You know, if you're giving a sin offering, obviously you sin. No, yeah, you're right, you're right. Okay, so you sin. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I sin. You're, you're right. Okay, Frank, what about you over here? Didn't you sin? Don't you sin as well? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay, here's the deal. We, we sin. We, we just realize that we all sin, but we're, we're, we're saying that they need to, those who are not yet apart, they need to obey the rules that we have not been able to obey. And the assembly fell silent. In other words, good point. Now, I'm going to skip some helpful stuff. But going to go down to verse 19. Because this is such a key verse. Um, I'm going to read it out of the NIV, actually. And just to say, I, I, I want you to know what kinds of verses and thoughts really influence my decision-making. Because, I mean, we're, we're together. Like, we're, we're, we're equal. We're members. I, I mean, God's given me this role to lead and, and to provide some level of guidance and direction. I just want you to know, this verse that I'm getting ready to read, it's one of the, the biggest it's one of the key verses that influences my thinking every time I preach, every time I consider how things are going at Jubilee, every time. It just this has such, such, has such a big influence on um, how I view what we're doing. And this is what it is. It's, it's James who stood up who was kind of like the co-leader with Peter. And he says this, It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. And what we say is necessary and unnecessary, what we say are non-negotiables and what are negotiable, and how we do preaching and how we do community and how we do um, you know, worship, we should avoid anything that makes it difficult for those who are not yet a part of the church to become part of the church. We should just break the door wide open. We should not, we, we should, the gospel, Paul says this other way, the gospel is a massive stumbling block. Let's not put another stumbling block in front of the stumbling block. Let's eliminate, let's make it as easy as possible. Let's not do anything. Let's not trouble. Let's not make it difficult for Gentiles, for those who are not yet apart, to become a part. Let's not do, let's not, so we, we want to do that. I'm going to get into some implications in a second, but I just want to shed one more light on one last really strange verse, verse 20. It says, but we should write to them, this is to the Gentiles, so Paul, get back on your camel or donkey or whatever, and go tell them, hey, good news, you know, is it like surgery? No surgery, okay, um, but here's what you need to tell them. This is what, if you want something to go back to kind of figure some things out, it says you should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, let me just kind of tell you what he's talking about here. He's talking about, first of all, don't do anything that's really going to offend, you know, your Jewish brothers. I mean, let's, let's think about what's loving here. And the other thing here is he talks about abstaining from sexual immorality, but also these other idols. So here's what he's saying to them. He's saying, look, if you want to give new believers a guideline, or if you want to make sure that they're really sincere, t- just tell them to, to make God their God and nothing else their God. 
that's what he's saying here. He's saying, uh, tell them that, uh, you know, so if, if you feel like you've got to make some kind of like, you know, filter system, just make sure that, that they're not viewing uh, some sexual relationship or relationship more than they're viewing God. Make sure that they're not viewing, uh, they're, not, they're, they're not just adding Jesus to their life, but they've really made them their one true God. Make sure of that. Which, by the way, that applies to all of us because we kind of go in and out of those things. So he says, hey, look, just make sure that money's not number one. Make sure God's number one. Make sure that career's not number one. Make sure God's number one. Make sure that relationships aren't number one, but that God's number one. That's what you should tell them. Don't give them all these obscure um, laws to follow that aren't batted in them of themselves because it, it's God who knows the heart. It's God who cleanses the heart. If he can cleanse the inside, he can cleanse the outside. But if you, if you want to give them something, just make sure that God is a priority. And so there are three things that I just want to end with here, three practical things to help us uh, with this topic. I, I call them drifts. If, you're, if you ever, Missouri is apparently the floating capital of the world, and if you ever go on a river, go floating, canoeing, in it, there's a current to every river, right? And uh, if you don't, if you don't paddle or, or, or swim or whatever, it, it just will take you downstream. You will drift downstream. You will, you will float downstream. To go against the current requires uh, some effort. There's a drift. And I think churches face three key drifts that if we don't, if we're not aware of these drifts, and, and more importantly, we're not like swimming against these drifts, if we're not actively we're going to just go, we're just going to lean in this direction. We're going to keep going and keep going and keep going. And here are the three are, they're, they're, they're drifts. Uh, the dr- one, drift number one is the, is the focus uh, from outsiders to insiders. That we, dr- we, the human condition in any community is to focus more, is to drift in your attention toward those who are inside both versus those who are outside. In my world, I never, no one, who doesn't attend here, uh, I never get a phone call from someone who doesn't attend here to complain. I never get feedback from someone that doesn't attend here on what the service it should look like, what should community, I never get any feedback from anyone who does not come here. I, get, I do get feedback from people who, who are part of what we're doing. Same thing is true for you in your relationships, in your community. You, you guys are giving each other feedback all the time on what makes, how you tick, what makes you feel loved. And you do that in aggressive ways. You do that in passive aggressive We all, we have these fe- And so the natural tendency is, the, especially as a church grows, is that we can, become, we can com- become very, very aware of each other. And so we really like what's going on, but other people come in and, and, and we're not very aware. Now, this, this, this drift happens all the time. Um, it, it, uh, so like when a church gets started, though, it, it's all focused on outsiders because there are no insiders. It's just... And so statistically, in America, 80%, 80% of all conversions to Christianity happen through churches that are uh, two years or younger because the drift is from outsiders to insiders. We have to be aware of this. 
we have to be aware of this. And because what it could end up happening is that if we, and this is, we can become legalistic. If you're an insider focused, you, you become legalistic because what you end up doing consciously or unconsciously is you, we begin to develop a culture that's very focused on ourselves. And what we say to people, either overtly or inadvertently, is, yeah, come be with us. Now you gotta be like us, but yeah, come be with us. And, and so we can end up just communicating this really odd message and, and we become very, and so to become inward focused is to become very legalistic, which means that we put parameters on people, um, parameters outside the gospel on people in order for them to, to be, be a part. So we've got to avoid that one. Second one is to drift from grace to law. And I don't mean theologically, I mean practically. I mean, we can slap, I mean, I don't ever think there'll be the day where I'll get out an eraser and just erase that we're saved by grace and not by works. I don't think there'll ever be a day where I'll stand up here. I, I really don't. That I'll say, hey, you know what? We were wrong. You need to do some things in order to be saved. I, that day will never come, but that will never happen theologically. But what can happen, and, and, and he, I say even does happen, unfortunately, is practically we can go from grace to law. And how that works out, especially in a church that grows and has some level of organization, is poli- we have more policies than we have conversations. Because policies are easy. I mean, I don't even, I don't even have to talk to you. I just, I just give you a policy. I give you a form. I, I tell you how we do things. And there's a real tension there because it, it, we all, all, all kind of want to know that we're doing the right thing. But what we want to say is we want to fight against this pressure to come up with all these different policies. And we want to have conversations. So Jesus, when he, he calls it Matthew, this tax collector, he says, hey, come with me. And, and the disciples are like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've got a policy. We don't allow people in our community that rip us off. That's our policy. And you're messing. Jesus is like, hey, shut up. I want to have a conversation. Matthew, come with me. And he says the same thing to Zacchaeus. He says the same thing to the woman caught in, caught in adultery. Adultery. In John 8, uh, the religious leaders say, we've got a policy. And that policy is when you commit adultery, and, and let's not forget this isn't our first time, you get, you get, we stone you. And Jesus essentially said, you go stone yourself. I want to have a conversation. <laughs> I want to have a conversation. And he has a conversation with this woman. And he, and he says, I don't condemn you. He says, now go and send them more. And that's another message. But he said, I don't condemn. And so, what, what if she does it again? I, what God begins in someone, he finishes. So, so as a church, we, we've got to have conversations. So when people come into New Met, we do, we, have, we, do have, we do believe things. We do have things that we're passionate about. But, you know, I don't know if you've picked this up, at, at, up or not, but uh, with Christians don't all agree on all points of theology. Have you noticed that? Yeah. And there's some that are more important than, than others. And, and we, what we want to do is, th- there are some non-negotiables, of course, but we want to keep that list small for this reason, not because we don't have thoughts about the other things. We really want to have a conversation. I, I want to know why you believe what you believe, not just what you believe. I just don't want to, Paul, I want to know why you believe that way. 
I, I don't want to have a, we, we, we want to minimize the amount of policies because we want to maximize the amount of conversations that we have. And, and I think there's a little chart I want to show you that kind of helps illustrate this. Um, in a law church, what's really important is it, the, the, the greatest thing is behavior. I mean, they never say this, but the reality is it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you just don't let anyone know and you behave right. I mean, this is sad. Don't laugh at this. This is sad. This, I, I've, in, as I've gone out and met other pastors, I have met pastors. I've met pastors who've preached from pulpits for years that at the end of the day uh, weren't Christians. And they came to that point and realized that. This is, this is very insidious and scary. So in a law church, behavior trumps belief, which trumps belonging. So if you behave, then, you know, maybe you'll believe. And then only if you behave like we want you to behave and believe the way we want you to believe, then you can belong. And being a grace church, this is what it looks like, which is a whole lot messier, is that in a grace church, uh, the first thing is belonging. So it's, hey, come with us. So he, Jesus comes to the tax collector, hey, come with us. Well, doesn't he have to stop being a tax collector? Well, he will. If he's with me long enough, he will. So we want, we want people to, to belong. And then in the context of that, they'll, they'll believe. I've seen that happen over and over again. I've seen people be here a year, two years, um, you know, in our services, in, in our community groups. And then, you know, the light bulb, then they believe and then he who began a good work in them will complete it. The, the, the behavior will come. See, the Bible says in, in Romans 5 that while we were yet sinners, while we, while we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for we finally figured it out. He didn't wait until we obeyed all the rules. While we were unable and uninterested in obeying the rules, he came to us. He made us a part. He, he caused us to believe and he made us become something which led to the behavior. Now, I'll just say this. If you do belong and you say that you do believe, the Bible does say there's an expectation that you'll behave. And guess what will happen if you belong and you believe and you don't behave. We'll have a conversation. A helpful one. One that will help you and help everyone else. But in order for me to address your behavior, I think, because I know this, I'll say this. In order for someone to really address my behavior, I need to know that I am in relation. I need to know that I belong. I need to know that they love me. And if I say I believe something, I want help to know how to live that out. And I think you want help knowing how to live that out. But if there isn't, a, if there isn't relationship and there isn't belief, who cares? Who cares if you recycle and you go to hell? Who cares if you dress a certain way, act a certain way, but you don't have belief? Jesus is everything. Your relationship with Jesus is everything. Your, your behavior, while also important, 
it has to, it has to come, it has to flow out of this thing. So as, so what we want to say, say, hey, belong with us. Moses says, I love this in Numbers, he says, come with us, we'll do you good. Come with us, be with us. Let's learn together, let's grow together. Yeah, I know you don't have everything figured out, neither do we. We're going to, we're going to somehow, we're going to figure this out together. I believe belief comes, I believe God is stirring people's hearts, he's saving people, and we're chilled out about your behavior some people are very shocked that actually we do care about behavior on a side note. I don't know how many people are like, we, they've been here for years and, or, or not, maybe not years, months at least. And um, it's like they belong, they know that we love them and um, they, they profess, they, they want to follow Jesus and they want to be like, they want to say, hey, we, we want to live this out. And, but they're, they're, living, they're living together. So back, make sure that Paul says, make, you know, address sexual immorality. So we, we, we do care about their behavior. And sometimes they're very surprised that we do care about. Well, wait a minute, I thought you guys were a grace church. Yes, we are. You, we've allowed you to belong. And now you're saying believe. It's great. Now let's work this out together in community. We don't want to throw a policy at you, but we do want to have a conversation. And that's what a grace church looks like. Uh, lastly, I'll just say this quickly. We have to make sure that we are not um, the, the, a third drift is from advancing to preserving. If for those of you who have ever started a business, I mean, you risked everything because everything was nothing in the beginning, right? And uh, you risked and risked, and, and now that you've, maybe the business has grown, you, you kind of start to preserve. That happens as individuals. I mean, when, when, I think, when, when I think about being younger, I mean, I was just willing to risk so much more stuff. Part of that was a lack of wisdom, uh, but another part of that was just that I had, I had seemingly had less uh, to risk. But I've got, I've got three kids, I've got a wife, I've got this, I've got this, these responsibilities. People are, count, you know, like people are counting on me. I feel this sense to want to preserve what I have and not advance what I have. That happens to churches all the time. There's this, this. You know, and, and I'm so, uh, you know, so this church, this church got started because John Lanferman, who founded this church in the mid-90s, who was in his mid-50s at the time, he was a hunter and he had property he could hunt on. He was a fisherman and he had a boat on a lake. He had a, a decent-sized church that he could just kind of ride into glory, but God, he felt God spoke to him to not to preserve what he had, to, but to risk what he had. And he moved to St. Louis. He came to a group of 40 people that upon his arrival, arrival split in two, which is an encouraging start. And so, but through blood, sweat, and tears, the, the church advanced, advanced, and advanced. And then he took another big risk. He, he turned the church over to some 29-year-old who had preached six messages up to that point. But, and he risked, the, the, the group that was probably about 140 or so there, risked all of that, said, hey, I think this is the way to go. And then a couple of years that we risked coming in. So we were out in the county, you know, paying bills, all that kind of stuff. We come into the city. And then we risk in starting other locations, which involve money. And here's the thing, we're, we're 600 people plus across four different uh, services and, you know, we've got employees, we've got buildings. I know things look, you know, reasonably nice, not too many stains. And, and, and uh, we've got a balance sheet. I mean, we've, there's some things. So there, there's a sense that we could seek to preserve. But here's what happens when you preserve and you don't seek to advance is that you forget that God left everything to come get you. 
He didn't preserve anything in coming after you. He didn't preserve anything in coming after me. And the moment I forget that is the moment I begin to build up these structures of legalism. And the moment that we stop risking everything that we have for the sake of the kingdom is the moment that we begin to build up these legalistic structures that become death to us. It's a horrible environment to be part of. I've seen churches get sick and die from this. And for us to to stay healthy as well as be relevant to the world around us, which we all want to be relevant. I mean, you all clapped and, and got excited about what we're doing around Christmas and benevolence. And it's like, yeah, there's something in you that wants to make a difference. I'm saying, I'm telling us we can't fall, we can't allow this drift from advancing to preserving to take root. These are just a few sh- things that I want us to be aware of. And just to say that we need God's grace to keep us in his grace to understand that just because we want grace doesn't mean that we dumb down the truth. And just because we want truth doesn't mean that we don't love grace anymore. But somehow, just as Jesus was full of grace and full of truth, we as a community can be the same.